What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is Dart Against Humanity, episode 39. I wanted Dart Against Humanity to be me talking about various things that interested me and hopefully interested the listening audience. The thing about going on or beginning any creative endeavor is having the wherewithal to one begin it follow through with your plan of executing it and then it's about managing expectations after that what happens if your podcast or YouTube channel or Twitter account or site or whatever doesn't get the audience that you hoped it did what if it doesn't grow do you have a a a a time frame for when you quit and do something else or just give it up or abandon it will you just let life intervene that being the case or will you have that personal conviction or will resolve to keep going in the face of it not growing or doing well are your motivations personal you know is it an internal thing that pushes you to do what you do are you doing it out of love because you enjoy it and you just like putting your time into it and you're not really paying attention to or really care whether or not other people are into it or if you can build a turn into a brand and build it as your brand and then monetize it when I began Dart Against Humanity I just felt like it was something that I had to do something I needed to do and I wasn't really looking to try to sell it to anybody or monetize it or Make it a brand that I can push and put me and, and, and sell myself as, you know, oh, this is this is my thing. Dart against humanity. You know, you need to get behind this. I haven't promoted this show. I haven't made flyers. I haven't like actively gone out and tried to grow this show. I decided to do it organically, which is to most people a joke. Because organic, and I'm using air quotes you can't see, is in the eye of the beholder. That being said, I spend a lot of time writing. Uh, Sometimes I have to try to pitch or whatever. And one of the things that I also do is I research for various projects that I may or may not ever release or... I have to put feelers out. A lot of times that means that you're uh, writing uh, book proposals or just talking to people about, you know, getting feelers out there, going, checking like uh, bookstores or the market or seeing how certain types of books or documentaries, what have you, in, in certain spaces are doing. Because you're trying to get an idea for what the market is like. Or if anybody would be interested in a particular thing. 
That being the case, it all goes back to one core thing. You, at some point, need to sell, whether it be yourself, uh, what you're doing, your output, an idea you have. You have to sell people on it. You have to get them to buy in. You have to get them to believe. It's the same way when you make film and you have an audience watching the film and they have to suspend belief. Your job as a writer or as a director who does the visuals is to have the audience suspend belief. If they check out You didn't do your job. If you're a comedian, it doesn't matter what the fuck happens. It doesn't matter what you say. It's your job to keep that audience engaged and make them laugh. If the audience isn't engaged and they turn on you, it's not the audience's fault. You have to take all the blame. It's your fault. What you said is what pissed off the audience or they didn't find it funny. It was on you to do it. And a lot of times... We have to go back to the core, right? So here's the thing. How do you sell something to someone knowing they don't believe in it themselves? They don't love it themselves. They're not passionate about it at all. They may not know what it is. They don't understand it. Nothing. That's the thing. Every single time You put out something. You do it with the hope that it resonates with people. And it will... It will find them... In... The same way that it found you. It will resonate with them on an emotional level. They'll be emotionally invested. They'll care. How the fuck do you get people to care about shit? In this day and age. You can't force them to. A lot of times it comes down to framing and engaging people and finding that common thread or that thing that's going to make the person pay attention and say, hey, yeah, that. You could be on Twitter and you'll see somebody just announce the idea of a project. All they do is name names. And give a a vague description of what the project will be about. And you see people respond on Twitter with, take my money. And I'm sitting there reading it. My brain works differently. I'm sitting there reading it. I'm like, but you don't know who's writing it. You know, like you could put any number of excellent actors in a a particular space about something. and And the movie could suck. Because who's fucking writing it? Who's directing it? This is where my this is where my head goes. But the point I'm bringing up is that you have to do something. You have to do something or say something that's going to make that person react and instantly be like, "Yeah, I'm on board." With some things, it's easy to do. With others, it's very hard. For for instance. Hip-hop history. Hip-hop. The culture. 
not rap, not the rap industry, hip hop culture. I was asked recently, I, um, so yesterday was the 30th anniversary of, uh, three times dopes debut classic album, original styling. So I was asked by a couple of people leading up to that day. Why is it that more uh, sites, uh, uh, more publications don't invest in hip hop history or rap history? Well, I've said it before, there's no money in it. You can't get people to care about something that they have no personal attachment to. I'm talking about an album from 30 years ago. It never went gold. Damn sure wasn't close to going platinum. Had a bunch of classic singles, but none of them crossed over. This album doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. I had to do all the research myself just to figure out its release date. All of it. So that being the case, how the fuck am I supposed to get people to be excited about it or to to want to throw money at me or give me a position to cover these things that people don't care about enough to give it a goddamn Wikipedia page. So it always cracks me up when people ask me, so won't you make a book about this? Won't you do this? If enough people cared, I would have a job doing it. So what makes you think that the idea would be to make a book? Steps. Like when you look at, like for instance, De La Soul, De La Soul's uh, album Three Feet High and Rising. Today, this is the thirtieth anniversary year of of it coming out, being big, blowing up. The importance of this album is that it got a, it was beloved by the mainstream. Had hit singles, hit single like me, myself, and I, which crossed over. You know, it captured the attention and the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, music writers loved it, and then when the whole uh, controversy behind the turtles suing De La Soul for sampling one of their songs that they didn't clear because Tommy Boy didn't think that it warranted it. And ended up biting them in the ass. And uh, kind of fucking up De La Soul. They had. Tommy Boy had no clue that De La Soul was going to become one of the top five hip hop groups. Maybe the maybe the one with the greatest back, back uh, catalog in history. When they signed these teenagers back in 1988. They had no fucking idea. Okay. That being the case. They also had no idea that the album that they put out in 1989, January 24th, 1989, not in March, was going to be as huge as it was. I think they probably thought that it was going to sell between 100,000 and 150K units, maybe. It almost, it, it stalled after gold and on its way to platinum. 
But the big thing that came out of it, of course, is that the uh, them getting sued and this big controversy around sampling and the nature of sampling. Now, you have people who never gave a fuck about rap music or sample-based music before, but they have an opinion now because they don't see it as real music. They see it as cheating. They play instruments. Real musicians play instruments. What you're doing does not constitute real music. You have people up in arms and angry. Why? Because this hits them in an emotional place. This raises their ire. They are going to be mad, furious, because they feel like the thing that they love is being attacked. And this is what gets a reaction out of them. Now, when you're trying to sell something, there's two ways you go about it. One, you try to get somebody to care or buy into it, or you get something that's automatically going to get people to react. And that's how we got clickbait. Because it's easy to gauge what's going to get people to react versus what are they going to love and what are they going to care about that's much harder to try to figure out but with De La Soul it forced it forced a whole bunch of conversations and one of the things that came out of it that was positive is people began to delve into the creation process behind uh hip-hop music rap how do you make a record sampling what's the equipment used what's the process like does it require actual skill and thought now why would the question be is this an actual art form is this hard to do Or is it some primitive thing that anybody can do and you're just taking shortcuts? Because it wasn't fully regarded as an art form. It wasn't respected as such. It wasn't seen as it could be high art. And I'm talking about De La Soul's album, Three Feet High and Rising, because for a lot of people, this album was the album that convinced them that rap was actually more than what they thought it was. The stereotypical depiction of what rap could be. Or it's just about me and my girly or violence or this and this and people beatboxing with gold chains. When they saw De La Soul and heard that album and heard the music that it used and the humor behind it, they were like, oh shit, this isn't what I thought it was. This reminds me of albums that my parents listened to from the 60s. This reminds me of this. This reminds me of that. And then they started having reference points to the classic rock that they hear on the radio. Or the vinyl records that their parents have. And suddenly rap meant something to them. It had real value to them. 
It was more than the surface to them. And then that's when they were emotionally invested and they cared because this art form. Wait, this is actually an art form. This genre music is actually it can be art. And it's hard to make it. It takes genius and expertise and years of practice to master. Because I know for a fact you can't just pick up a fucking guitar and be great at it. You have to work at it. And you mean to tell me these guys just don't write just anything when they rap? You mean to tell me that rappers are oftentimes people that fucking study the English language and are obsessed with it? Trying to find ways to marry meter and rhyme and interject humor and try to be original when they hear that their peers are doing new and creative things? It was these albums released mostly in that stretch from 1986 to 1989, that golden era, that made an impression on people, that made them realize, oh shit, this is art. We're making timeless material here. Some of this music is actually going to be played after the people who created it passed away. Now, think about between 1979 and 1984, the era when rap records first started being made, rap albums started being made, uh, the music started being recognized in spaces outside of just what hip hoppers reside in. 1981, when you have the first national news story about it, uh, a story in the paper, Sally Baines' uh, article, uh, Physical Graffiti, Breaking is Hard to Do, uh, shows up in 1981. You know, uh, Blondie releases the Rapture single. Dom DeLuise releases It's Good to Be the King. 1981, then we get to 1984, which is the year where the first wave of studio, air quotes, hip hop or rap movies are first made. You got Breakin, you got Beat Street, you have Body Rock, and these films were inspired a lot by the documentaries, um, Style Wars, uh, Breaking and Entering, which was a, a West Coast hip-hop documentary, which was made by Roxbury's own Topper Carew. Roxbury's in Boston. You're welcome. And especially uh, the initial hip-hop film. It wasn't a documentary. Um, Wild Style. These were all made and screened mostly in 1983 although um style wars was screened in 1983 it first got played nationally on pbs 
in um I think January 18th, 1984. So that's when everybody got to see it. In some cities, they never played it again on PBS. They kind of banned it because kids immediately went out and started doing graffiti. And of course, back then, very few people had VCRs, so nobody recorded it. You couldn't rent it anywhere. You couldn't get it from a library. So it was a good 12 to 15 years before anybody could purchase it. That's crazy, right? Now, back to the main point. Between 1979 and like 1983, how the fuck do you sell this culture to people who don't understand what it is? How? You have to find something in it that's going to make them go, oh shit. Oh, something basic. Something that's going to resonate with them. Something that's going to make them immediately care. Or be fixated on. You have Grandmaster Flash. Look at the way he scratches. Listen to what he's doing with the records. Ooh, ah, all right. Let's show you these B-boys. Look at what they're doing. The, 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 the dexterity requires. The gymnastics. The skill. The agility. The power moves. Ooh, ah. Now let's go over to this wall. Look at this graffiti. Look at the art, the paint, the colors, the composition, the angles. Wow, that's beautiful. That that is creative. Wow. Ooh, ah. Now we have rappers. These guys come up with rhymes. These women, they can go for 30 minutes to an hour going back and forth nonstop, uh, coming up with lines and rhymes and stuff like that, rocking the crowd. And you see the people dancing in the audience. Wow, this is amazing. So there's something that you can point to. And there are main there are main people in the scene that you could point to. And you can say, yo, this needs to be documented, or we need to cover this. Because we can make exhibitions out of it. And of course, in the early days, you had the people who were like, I have an idea. Let's throw an event. Let's have an exhibition. Let's do this. But you had to find people outside of that space for the most part in order to validate it to other people. You needed a, a, a Charlie Ahern. You needed a Henry Chalfant. You needed a Marty Cooper. You needed to have somebody like a Rick Rubin be interested in it. You needed to have guys like Scene actually be graffiti writers. So when you're about to make the documentary... You can show that it's not just black and Latino kids who are involved. Or or um Duster or Cap 
that's going to open people's eyes. That's going to make them care because they think it's just segmented to this to just this group. You don't realize that kids that grew up on Led Zeppelin are fucking with this hip hop shit too. Now you care. Now you're interested. Now you want to know more. But there's always a point where you have to figure out how do you frame, present a market culture like it's a product to those who might not respect it, value it, or understand it themselves. And it's a compromise that we all have to think about on some level, whether we think of it or not. When you go to a job interview, you're being interviewed and basically what you're doing is you're trying to sell yourself to the employer. Anytime I write a piece, to me, I feel like this needs to be out there. This needs to be made. But I have to sell it on the site or the editor so that they believe that when they post it or they have it on the site, that they can be confident that other people will care about it too. I have to sell them on that. When you're on a date, you're selling yourself. The idea of you or what you can offer or or maybe we can build together like you're you're a fucking publicist or or this is this is a client of yours or you're about to be in a partnership because you are about to be in a partnership. And we can grow going forward and we can do this and this, this and. I'm good at problem solving. I'm a good listener. I'm creative. I'm spontaneous like all this shit. We're always selling ourselves or we're branding ourselves to attract new people. And that falls in line with your uh, consistency and your ability to deliver on time and stay true to your brand, whatever the fuck your brand is. I hate the idea of branding, I'm sure you know. But the thing is that I apparently have been told I'm the king of branding without branding. I'm the king of marketing without marketing. People love my authenticity. I'm not being authentic. I'm just being me. Ooh, that's an authentic thing to say. God damn it. Cut that out. One of the things that frustrates me to no end is that there are several people who are great at what they do as creatives, as artists, but they haven't found the way to um, be able to get above the noise, market themselves, grow an audience, get people to care. It's frustrating because you know that If the world was a meritocracy and people valued who did things the best or art for art's sake or culture, 
that these people would be where they deserve to be and be recognized for the geniuses they are. But it's not enough. Not everybody can do all of the things. All of the things is something that uh, Jean Grey used to always talk about. Jean Grey, um, Satori Ananda doing all of the things. Some people are good at doing all of the things or do it out of necessity. Or one thing that they're really good at is getting other people to believe in them and pay and, and, and buy in to them. Not everybody can do that. So what they have to do is they have to find somebody else who can help them get the messaging out or help them with the branding or the framing or with connections. There's a man uh, who is responsible for making the fat boys the international global phenomenon that they became all because of his hustle his determination and his willingness to go big was he involved in hip hop not really yes but no did he grow up with it absolutely not he discovered it as an adult and he wasn't even from America he's from overseas But what he did was he was able to sell and market and brand. And he was able to get these guys into spaces that they wouldn't be able to themselves, being that they were of the culture. The thing is that it's a two way street. We always discuss culture vultures. And people always wondered, how did they get in? How did they get in? And it just proves to me that people don't know the history of the genre or the art or the cult or the music that they fucking listen to. And whose fault is that? Because at some point, it stopped being important. When something that's in culture or an art form becomes commoditized and is turned into something that's sellable or sellable, there's something that's immediately lost. Just like when any any time you do, you undergo a uh, um. A transformation into making something one thing to another when you're translating it. Something is usually lost. And that's one of the things that ends up lost. You can't carry everything over. You have to take away something in order to make it something that you're going to then make palatable to an audience. So recently, um, the creator of Captain Marvel, 
came out and had some words about, you know, the Captain Marvel movie saying that he didn't like what they did with the Kree and the Skrull. They're supposed to be as bad as each other. And they turned it into like a, a, a after school story. And they didn't give Captain Marvel anything emotional and all these other things and blah, blah, blah. And of course, what it came down to is the creator of the of of the of the um of the character didn't really like what happened in the film, which totally totally understandable. I get it, but of course, here's the thing: when you're doing Captain Marvel or you take a character or something, you have to then take it and put it in the confines. Of what you're trying to do. Then you're trying to figure out a way. To sell it. And make it. uh, Work for the audience. And reflect the times. It was made in. So you have this whole agenda of things that you want to do. In terms of the studio. In terms of the director. In terms of the creative staff, in terms of the the director, the editor, everything. And then it has to perfectly lead us to the next thing. Now, we can't do all that shit and stay true to the vision that you had in your head 40, 35 years ago when none of this shit existed. That's why sometimes, especially in a field like comic books, it's a detriment to have people that are so emotionally attached to it that they feel that they have to do all of these things and and keep this live because at the, the end game, the end result that you're looking for is to do this. So sometimes you need somebody who's not as attached in order to market and sell and do the thing. And you need to have somebody to consult with like, all right, that doesn't fall in line with this. That doesn't fall in line with this. That will work. That will work. So you can compromise. And this is always the case. You have the visionaries, you have the business people, and then you have the creatives. And sometimes you have the creatives who are also the hustlers, the marketers, and the business people. It's not always the same thing. But how did the culture vultures get involved? Because at some point, there's that space where you need somebody who could drum up that interest. For whatever reason. And there are people who are desperate to get above the noise. And if you seem like you're the person that's offering that opportunity to them, they are going to ride with you forever because you're the reason why they're not eating uh, dollar noodles every day. Before you, there was somebody who only had 650 followers on Twitter and 800 Instagram followers. And now you're getting booked all over the place 
because of your attachment to this person. This is how we allow people in. Because at some point, we have to go from an idea to something that people see is a viable commodity that they're willing to buy into. A lot of this boils down to a creative trying to present something that they care about, that they sweated for, that they bled for to uncaring people. And that is a fucking daunting task and it's soul crushing. Can you imagine if you're someone that's trying to get their art out there? And you're like, all right, I'm going to create a Patreon and you can support me if you want to and do this if you want to. And they look at the Patreon numbers and them shits is low as fuck. Does that make you want to create? Does that make you want to uh, do anything or just make you depressed? You put your heart and soul into something, you research something to death, you put it out there, nobody cares. Or you do something, you make something, you think that it's amazing and you see the rate that you're getting paid for it and you get fucking depressed over that too because you feel it's really worth more. Or now you're trying to put together something that you think is essential and the world needs and there's an audience for it and you have to completely kill yourself in order to convince the person who could give you money or the company or the firm or the group that could give you money to make your dream a reality that this is something other people would give a fuck about too because none of the people that you're talking to have a baseline inkling or a clue to understand what exactly it is you're selling so what do you have to do You have to compare it to other things that are already out, already on the market, that are books, that are documentaries. So they have an idea, this did well, this did well, this audience exists because of this, 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 and this. Look at all this money you're leaving on the floor by not taking advantage of this audience who's fucking dying. They're hungry for this. And the person who could get you there is me. Because I have a command of all of these things. And I care about it. And I'm going to be the person that they're going to look at and say, yeah, that guy, that guy is the person who I trust to package all this and give it to us who care about it. Because what's going to happen is if this person is leading the charge. All the people who could sell it for you are going to be like, yeah, that motherfucker. He says, then we all, you know, this is something that needs to happen. And you have to hope against hope that this idea that you have. They'll be like, 
Yeah, sure. Not necessarily because they care or they buy in too, because they see profit in it or potential profit in it. Like it's a fucking startup. I was in the startup space um, five years ago with Killer Boombox. And I went to so many different um, pitches and I saw how investors reacted to different um, pitches and it all boiled down to the same thing. You could make a fantastic pitch. The first question is, how much money did you make? How did you generate income? How much income have you generated uh, recently? Uh, Was there any growth? Because they just want to know if there's going to be a return on investment. Based on that potential return on investment or its growth potential, they will invest in it and they will care. Not necessarily because they think it's something that needs to exist. Because it's something that will be profitable. And having to reconcile yourself with that idea is demoralizing. I often get asked, how come you haven't done this? How come where's your book? Where's this? Where's that? Where's this? Because a lot of the ideas I have that people know, the great ideas, fantastic ideas. You can research the shit out of this. You pretty much done the work already. I saw you lecture about this before. I heard you talk about this before. And you're so passionate about it. And you made me care. And I went and I looked and and all these things. It's like, that's great. But the thing is that I have to then go to someone else who has no fucking interest in what I'm doing does not give a fuck has no clue about who out there may or may not actually care too and then i have to sell them on it and then i might get a weak thing like well um i'll tell you what send me a sample chapter now i have to put together a sample chapter and send it in to the same person who originally didn't care or wasn't invested Until I made this presentation and I sold the fuck out of it. Because then what happens is if I do make this sample chapter and it's amazing and whatever and they see the return, then now they care. Well, actually, they don't care. Now they just know or they care enough that there might be something here. They don't care like I care. They never will care like I care. Because if they cared like I cared, they would have put this fucking book out themselves a long time ago. Or this documentary a long time ago. Or they would have actively gone to seek out the people to put it together because they think it's something that needs to exist. That's not how the fucking world works. You have to tell people what they need. Which is fucking insane. For the most part. Uh, So. One of the reasons I usually don't do the podcast early. Is because I don't sleep. And I do the podcast on a Friday. Which means 3am every Friday. Netflix has a new series to come out. Uh, The second half. Second part of the OA. Which is a show made by a, a group. Uh, two people, a couple, uh, one of them being Britt Marlin. 
Uh, they made a independent film, sci-fi film that I uh, character based that I loved. Uh, my brother and I actually went to went to see it, or tried to see it in the theaters, but we ended up seeing it on demand. It's called The Sound of My Voice. Easily one of my favorite independent films of the past decade. So the OA is a Netflix series, which is really fucking weird and high minded and it's complex and it can be convoluted if I try to explain it. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because how in the fuck did they pitch that to Netflix? And could they have pitched that series to Netflix if they didn't have the sound of my voice already? And they're like, you know what? You need to watch the sound of my voice. And then you can understand where we're coming with this. The same reason Richard Kelly wouldn't be able to sell shit if it wasn't for the fact that he made Donnie Darko. And made people believe, oh, the Donnie Darko guy. So you always have to put your first foot forward and put something out there to make people care and make people believe first. I figured that I did that with my entire career, but I never know. So I guess the first foot forward or the first step forward is Super Champ Books is just just today, uh, March 22nd, um, 2019, is released a rap journalism anthology series. It's titled Best Damn Hip Hop Writing 2018. Um, I was one of the guest editors for this particular um, book. My name's on the cover. So, back when I was writing and killing myself, uh, really trying to break into uh, hip-hop journalism in the space and try to get a name for myself, and I'm fucking broke as shit, and my mom is like, why are you killing yourself? Like, you're so smart and good at all these things. Why are you killing yourself for this fucking thankless field? And it wasn't until... (laughs) There was a book published by Matt Mason, The Pirate's Dilemma, where she saw my name in print in a book where she believed and understood and bought into, oh, you're actually doing something that matters to someone. And then when the next book came out and my name was in it, she was like, oh, okay, maybe you have something here. Then when I pick up a national magazine and show her, that's my quote. When I came back to her with the um, with the Bay State banner, and my name, is there as the article was written by me. Now she understands. It's kind of like that. And she had no concept of what it is I did, what I what, what what I covered, what I wrote about, what I wasted my time with. All she saw was that I wasn't advancing fast enough. I didn't have a steady job and I was wasting my time. And now imagine if my dad was alive. My dad, immigrant parents, they do not want their kids fucking around with anything that's going to make them broke. So... Uh, Best Damn Hip Hop Writing 2018 came out today. You can find it on Amazon. My name's on the cover. And 
based on how this goes, things could start moving going forward. Also, another thing. Um, last year, I had um, last summer, uh, me for Boston Mathematica, Mathematic Athletics put out the first uh, series of the Boston Legends um, line where we make throwback uh, uniforms, jerseys, shorts, kits. This summer, we just announced that we're doing our second series. Um, it's the second collection. So uh, the collection is gonna uh, it's gonna consist of Dana Barrows, uh, who played as a Varian between 1985 and 1989. We have um, Jamal Jackson, rest in peace, who played at East Boston between um, 1988 and 1992. Uh, he passed away. He actually was killed um, blocks away from where I am right now. I actually went looking for him and discovered blood on the sidewalk and didn't know it was his because I didn't know if he had gone home or not. He was supposed to have gone home already, but I heard he was still around playing ball and I was trying to catch up to him. Uh, we also have uh, Scooney Penn. Uh, he played at Salem between 1991 and 1995. And Wayne Turner, uh, he played at Beaver Country Day between 1991 and 1995. We're throwing their high school throwbacks. Uh, you might know Scooney Penn. He played at Boston College, transferred, went to Ohio State, played with um, Michael Red. Uh, Wayne Turner uh, won national championships at Kentucky, played the most games at point guard in NCAA uh, history at one point. Uh, probably all-time great uh, college guard. Uh, Dana Barrows, uh, all-time great Big East guard scorer at Boston College, uh, went on to play in the NBA. Uh, he was a longtime Boston Celtic. And Jamal had the, a shot to go pro. He was at Cleveland State. He was a monster. He had a huge game against Ohio State that just showed his full potential. He was 6'6", but he could do it all. He was a, he was a monster. He, he had a bright future, and he's gone too soon. He His story needs to be told. And what we're doing is we have this thing. Um, we're going to do the Boston Legends podcast where what we're going to do is we're going to tell the story first of Boston basketball that a lot of people don't know. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to um, frame, frame and present our culture to people who don't, who normally wouldn't care to make them understand why this is so important to us, why we're so invested in it, and what it means to the wider basketball culture. And what we're going to do is we're going to have everybody whose jerseys that we're doing, we're going to have them come in and we're going to have them tell their story and talk about their careers and what happened. Uh, 
A, B, C, X, Y, and Z. We're gonna go through everything. Um, for Jamal, we're going to have his. We're gonna have some of his friends and family family members uh, talk about him. Uh, in particular, Jermaine Wiggins, who played with him at East Boston. Uh, Jermaine Wiggins uh, played in two Super Bowls uh, with the Patriots and against the Patriots with the um with the Carolina Panthers. Um, so. These are this is what I'm doing now. And the challenges to come with it, just like with anything else, any outside project that I'm doing, is you're always having to go uphill and you're always trying to sell, sell, sell something that you don't necessarily think is a commodity. I don't like treating culture like a business. It just, it doesn't, it just, it feels dirty to me. But at the same time, I'm so passionate about something that I know what I have to do in order to try to get it out there to people. Whether it's basketball, whether it's albums, whether it's a a piece of art that I don't think enough people are are familiar with, whether it's an album by an artist that doesn't have a home yet that I'm trying to find a home because I believe in it and I think I can um, get other people to understand that in the same way it's a constant struggle basically it's like trying to sell somebody a pen you know it's every fucking day Every time you put something out, it's, it's that transaction you're trying to make. Uh, there's a film called The Blade. Not Blade. The Blade. Uh, Hong Kong action film. A lot of swords in it. And in it, they talk about um, The Cell. Or the sale or the transaction and how every time you interact with a human being or a person or have a friendship or a personal relationship, there's a transaction made. It deals with trust and emotional connection. And you being consistent. And once you do something that breaks that trust, no more transactions can be had going forward. You no longer believe in that product or that person or that brand. You are no longer loyal to it. You see no point of going forward. Basically, you're trying to create Repeat customers. It's a really fucking deep metaphor that that film tries to get across. But it's something that I try to understand what I do as I'm sitting at a table in front of a copy of Bloomberg Business Week and and the last fast company. I am doing business and not At the same time. And it's fucking weird. Because art and commerce. Shouldn't be like oil and water. 
but for some odd reason they are.